So today we're on our final part of Titus, and it's Titus chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. We're going to read through it together. Does anyone need a Bible? Hands up if you need a Bible. If you need a Bible and you've got your hand up, there's Bibles at the end of the rows. If somebody could just pass one along or fling one in the general direction of people who need a Bible, that'd be great. Awesome. And uh, this part of um, the, the passage is called Paul's final remarks. It's the last thing he's saying. So it's his final reminder. So there's like a, a bit of importance that comes with that itself. He's like saying, this is the thing I'm leaving you with. Remember this. So we'll start at verse 12. It says, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Sounds like he's on a ski trip, doesn't it? Do everything that you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you their greetings. Greet those who love us in faith and grace be with you all. Awesome. So it's quite a short passage, but there's a really clear message in there. It kind of says, hello, goodbye, and there's a really clear message in the middle, and it's straight to the point. The first thing we see Paul saying here is that we aren't to sit still and wait for things to happen. We have to be going. So the first point is, let's go. Um, He makes it really clear as he introduces the different characters in this passage that everyone is doing something and moving and is active and looking to advance the kingdom of God. We look at the first couple of people he introduces um, and we see Artemis and Tychicus, Tychicus, somebody who speaks fluent Greek can probably tell me about that later. Um, And they're coming, they're on their way, they're going to replace Titus. And then Titus himself is just about to go and spend the winter with Paul in Nicopolis. And then the next two guys he mentions are um, Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos, and they're on their way somewhere too, because he's saying help provide for these guys' needs. Um, I was reading a bit of the commentaries this week, because um, I was trying to figure out who are these guys, who are Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos, and, and the general feeling um, that the commentators have is that they were going to, to new places um, to, to branch out the Christian faith, and they came in a team of the lawyer and Apollos, who doesn't have a title, but Apollos was the guy who went and preached the good news um, and kind of stirred up Um, trouble really in different areas by preaching the good news and then Zenas the lawyer was there to sort of bail him out when he got in trouble so it's such a such a fun image of like Apollos going in and just causing havoc by bringing the gospel um, and changing things and turning worlds upside down you can almost see Zenas in the background like oh no he's done it again Um, so I thought it would make a good tv show or something like that the lawyer and the preacher Um, kind of one of those ABC American ones Um, but it's really really clear um, that people are going we're being told to go places do things don't just sit and wait for it to happen but let's go and do something Um, Most of you will know um, that before I became a pastor, uh, I was in advertising. That was where I began in uh, Glasgow. I worked for the Yellow Pages or Yellow.com or Haibu, I think, as they're known now. And my job was to generate new business for the company. So I had to speak with businesses who were not currently with us and try and bring them on board onto Yellow Pages and Yellow.com and stuff like that. And initially when I did my training for the job, I was quite surprised because we did about five days worth of training on how to sell products and only about one day's worth of training on what the products were. And that didn't really make any sense to me. I thought surely people want to know what they're buying and all that kind of stuff. And it's the Yellow Pages. Everyone goes in the Yellow Pages. So... 
Now, surely that would just not be a problem at all. However, by the end of the first week, I learned that sitting about waiting for business to come to me was not going to pay my bills. It was not going to get me a wage, and it was probably going to get me fired. I think I was told to F off more in my first week of working at Yale than I had been in my entire life up until that point, um, which was quite an experience for me. Um, but what I learned was that if I wanted business to come in, if I wanted to be making money, if I wanted to be building new business, I had to be going and getting it. We called it prospecting, like in the old days, digging for gold. You had to go and dig for your own gold and bring it in. You had to be active in what you were doing if you wanted to see things happening. And this is what Paul is saying here at the start of this passage. Um, it's true for us as believers in Jesus that we have to be going places and doing things and taking the good news to the world. You know, it's not going to work for us to sit in church on a Sunday morning and hope that people will stumble past our doors. You know, maybe once every now and again, someone will stumble in by accident and stumble across us as a church as they look for a toilet or as they come into the wrong building or something like that. But we need to be active and go and telling people the good news because it's good news. Like the news that we have to tell people is that Jesus has come and he's died for their sins and he's saved them and he set them free. And that's incredible news. It's absolutely phenomenal news. And Paul's saying, you have to make a conscious decision to pursue God, to pursue his kingdom coming in all the areas of your life. Um, and we have, to, we have to go. And it's not the first time we're told this in the Bible. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he says again, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. In Matthew 10, 67, he says, Go rather to the lost sheep. Um, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. He's telling us to go. It's a really clear message, and he's challenging us to go this morning. And I saw a picture on a sign this week as I was preparing for doing this talk, and I think it kind of sums up perfectly what Paul is saying in this passage. It's this one here, passengers prohibited. Passengers prohibited. In the church, there are no passengers. We all have to be working together to take the good news to the lost. And somebody described it to me recently as like the church being like a big boat. Um, on the boat, you have many people who do different roles. You've got the captain. You've got the cooks. You've got the cleaners. You've got the person who's in charge of navigation. You've got the person who's in charge of maintaining the engine. Every single person on that ship has a job to do. Now, if one of those people turned up on the ship one day and tried to make the ship go, it would not happen. It has to have everyone playing their part for that ship to work effectively. And church is exactly the same. If we want to be an effective church who are effective at taking the gospel to our communities and seeing people's lives radically changed by the love and the grace that we've experienced in Jesus, we have to work together. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. And when I first came to faith, um, I would hear people saying to me that everyone had a part to play in the kingdom and I would look around in my church and I saw a lot of people who seemed to be very good at being Christians, um, people who seemed to be better at praying than me, people who seemed to be better at sharing the good news than me. We would have a testimony slot and people would stand up and tell these amazing stories about things that they'd done with Jesus that week and I felt about a centimetre tall compared to these people. So whenever anything went out about volunteering or taking a chance to do something in the church or taking the gospel to somewhere, I didn't want to do it because I thought, God, there's so many people who are better than me at doing this stuff. There's so many people who would do a much better job than I would at working with kids or at going out and playing football with teenagers. Other people will do this better. But as we go through the Bible, it's really obvious that God isn't about calling perfect people because the myth is there's no such thing as a perfect person. 
None of us are perfect. None of us are wholly ready. None of us are totally equipped for what God calls us to do. And none of us are better than anyone else sitting here this morning. You have to know that, that nobody here in God's eyes is holier or better or more worthy of his task and his call than you are because he has something specifically for you. We look at the characters that we meet in the stories in the Bible, and we see people who are not perfect, who God uses in amazing ways. You look at Moses in the Old Testament. He was a murderer, and he was a stutterer. He could hardly string a sentence together. And when God called him, he actively told God to go and find somebody else, because he didn't feel like he was up for the job. Yet this was the man that God used to lead over a million of his people from one land to another. I don't know about you, but leading a million people seems like quite a big deal and quite a big task. We look at guys like David, who had an affair with a married woman, but was yet the king of Israel and who led God's people for a number of years. You look at guys like Joseph. He was prideful and he had a really high opinion of himself. He thought he was the business. And yet God still used him to to bring the news to his people in Egypt and to lead Egypt in such a way that was revolutionary for that time that saved millions of lives because of how he prepared for the famine. Guys like Zacchaeus in the New Testament who who was a thief and he was somebody who tricked people and, and tripped people up and stole money from them. Jesus still came to him and gave him a calling on his life, gave him a plan and a purpose. God is not a God who calls perfect people because perfect people don't exist. God calls the broken people. God calls the hurting people. God calls angry people. God calls jealous people. God calls each and every one of us to play a part in his kingdom. Because God's all about the -the on-the-job training. You're not perfect when you leave to go and do God's work. He loves you, he has grace for you, and he trains you as you go and equips you as you go. So don't wait about until you're perfect before you do anything for the gospel and take his good news out, because the truth is you'll be waiting forever. He's calling you now. You know, in the community that we are based here, there's a whole load of issues that come with being in this community. There's drug and alcohol issues. There's people who have really bad financial issues. There's people who are struggling on a day-by-day basis here, and everyone struggles with different things. You know, I know from getting to know some people in this area that people um, living here no more than 100 metres from where we're meeting this morning are thinking every morning when they wake up that they don't know whether they can make it to the end of the day with all the stresses and the strains and the worries that they've got. And we've got good news to take to these people. You know, Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and knowing him and knowing his love and grace changes things. And I'm not saying that debts will magically disappear or people will be healed of addiction straight away, although sometimes that does happen. But what we can do is bring hope, a hope in something more than this, a hope that this isn't the end, a hope that in Jesus we have eternal life. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. So we've got a responsibility to share that good news, whether it's telling our kids on a Sunday morning, whether it's going out and wavelength on a Friday night and playing football with the teenagers, whether it's um, working on the storehouse and helping provide food for people, whatever it is God's calling us to, we have a responsibility to do it and to go and uh, share his good news. God doesn't want passengers in the church. Everyone has a role to play and we're all being called to, to do that. And so the question is, where's God calling you? What's God calling you to do? What's the, what's the job and the role that God's got for you? And if you don't know that this morning, we would love to pray for you and um, that you would reveal that to you. Awesome. So we're being called to go. Secondly, we're being called to give. 
Um, when we look through this passage, um, it says we have to give our time in good works. When we go back to, I think it's verse 14, it says our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. And this isn't the first time that Paul has addressed this issue of giving in the book of Titus alone. Even in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So it's clear that we are being called not to just be generous with our money and our material goods, but also to be generous with our time as well. We're being called to give. We aren't being called to occasionally do some good stuff, but we are being called to devote our lives to doing what is good. That's what the passage says. Devote yourselves to doing what is good. And that really made me think a bit about how how do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? Am I devoted to what I'm doing? Or do I just give enough to let me sleep at night? And it was quite a challenging question. It's one that would pierce the heart a little bit when you think about it. Um, When I was younger and I was living in Glasgow, I went along to BB. Any Boys Brigade people in here this morning? Yes, brilliant. Any Scouts? Brilliant. We'll have a fight in the car park afterwards. Fantastic. Um, But I went to Boys Brigade and I absolutely loved it. We played football every week. Um, They had a canteen where I got to buy pretty much a pound's worth of Freddos every week. That got you 10 back then. That's only four Freddos nowadays. That is what inflation has done to this country. Still bitter about it. Um, But we had loads of competitions. We went away camping. It was like every boy's dream. I absolutely loved going along to the BB. Um, And throughout my time at BB, I got to know one of the officers really well. His name was um, Derek Miller or Mr. Miller, as I still called him, into my adult life when I went back to visit the church at the age of like 22. Sir, how are you doing? Even though I'd been out of BB for a while. Um, But Mr. Miller um, is unashamedly one of my absolute life heroes. Um, He devoted 53 years of his life. He served the Boys Brigade company that I was in. Um, He went to every single competition. He was there every Friday night. He led the Bible study every Sunday morning. I would guess on average that he put thousands, if not tens of thousands of hours of his life into the Boys Brigade. At one point, um, he even uh, like got a whole load of his own money together and bought a minibus um, off his own back um, for taking people to and from competitions. He was just an absolutely incredible man. And in 2001, he suffered a stroke um, and he, he suffered partial paralysis down the, the left-hand side of his body. And even then, about six or seven weeks after he'd had the stroke, he was back at BB on the phrase night still serving still doing everything that he'd done before he was just one of my absolute heroes and he just sums up perfectly I think what it is to be devoted in both your time your energy your skills and your money he was absolutely devoted and I have no doubt in saying that hundreds of people heard about Jesus through the work that he did with the boys brigade Um, and he's just an absolute hero of mine and it's this same kind of devotion and self-sacrifice that's been asked of us in this passage We're told to do two different things that when brought together make for some serious trouble for the enemy's plans. The first is that we're to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Um, I love a wee dictionary definition, me. It's one of my favourite things to do when I'm doing a talk is to look at the words and what the definitions are. And the the meaning, the the dictionary.com meaning of devotion is to give all or most of one's time or resources to a person or activity. To give all or most of one's time and resources to a person or activity. So in this case, in this passage, we're asked to be given all or most of our time and resources to doing good works for the kingdom. But what does this actually mean? Does it mean that we spend our whole lives just doing good stuff here and there? Um, Or is there a bit more direction than that? 
I would say that there's a bit more direction than that. When we read through the rest of the Bible, it's really clear what God means by good works and what he's asking us to do. In Colossians 3, 17, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, we aren't being asked to do good just for the sake of it. And we aren't being asked to do good just to tick a box and fill the warm, fuzzy feeling inside of us. We're being asked to do good because when we do good works in the name of the Lord, it is like a bright, shining lamppost that points people towards heaven and that points people towards the Father. When we give a little taste of his love and his grace through the actions that we do on earth, people get to see a little taste of how amazingly they are loved and taken care of and set free by their heavenly Father. That's what it's all about. We don't do good works just for the sake of it. We don't do it just to say that we can. I don't know about you guys, but often when I do something good, I'm kind of always half looking over my shoulder to see who's noticing, to say, he's a good guy. It's not about being a good guy. It's not about being a good girl. It's about pointing people towards Jesus. It's about letting them know that they have a savior who's willing to do everything for them. And if we can just give them a little taste of what that means by doing some good stuff for them here on earth, then why would we not do that? Why would we not want people to see Jesus? So we're to give um, by devoting ourselves to what is good. And secondly, we're told to give in the form of providing for urgent needs. It's a really interesting turn of phrase, this. I was really interested to see that this is the only time in the the whole New Testament that the word urgent is used. Um, It's never used at any other point in the whole New Testament, the word urgent. Urgently is used twice, I think, but the word urgent, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. So clearly Paul is wanting us to sit up and take notice of what he's saying here, provide for urgent needs. So what does he mean by this? Does it mean going and filling in the potholes in Aberdeen? Because to me that is an urgent need. Or does it mean going and lifting the roadworks from Clifton Road? Because again, for me, that is an urgent need. Or does it mean providing enough public toilets so that people who have an urgent need are provided for? I don't think so. I think Paul's talking about a kind of giving here that is sacrificial, that means we are giving something away that actually costs us something. When I was younger, I used to absolutely hate going to the supermarket with my mum. Anyone else in that boat, you'd get dragged along to the supermarket to do the shopping. We lived in Partick in Glasgow. I don't know whether anyone's familiar with Partick in Glasgow, but when I was a child, it had one supermarket. It's not like nowadays where there's a Tesco here, Sainsbury's here, such as we had a Safeway and that was our local brand, and we stuck with Safeway. We were committed Safeway customers. Um, and my mum, I would dread it. I knew it was coming on a Saturday afternoon. You'd hear the words, I'm just going to Safeway for the shopping. Would you like to come with me? Which meant you're coming with me, but you can argue with me, or we can do this in a civilised manner. Um, so I went along to Safeway, and I hated it. It felt like about three hours going round the shop and picking all this stuff. But there was one silver lining for me in going to Safeway, and that was when we got to the end and we went through the till, they had one of those little swirly coins machines where you put the coin on the top and the 2p went round and round and round and round and round and then flew out the hole at the bottom and I loved this I, honestly I could have put about seven pounds worth of 2p's in there and still not have been bored of it and I used to go there every week my mum would supply me with a wee pile of 2p's and I'd battle them I'd put three down at once to see which one could knock the other one off anyway the point is I got more out of that charitable giving than the charitable giving box got out of me I loved it And I gave something, but it didn't cost me anything, and I got more back from it than they ever got from my little pile of 12p that I put in every week. And I wonder how true that can be for us today in terms of how we give. I wonder if if for us today, are we giving in a way that costs us? 
that actually costs us something or are we giving out of the excess? Are we giving out of what we can really afford to give or are we giving as a sacrifice? When we look through the Bible, there's a couple of times where we're really directed to what it is to give in a kingdom way. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41 to 44, it says this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to them, truly I say, you, say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, it says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I don't know about you, but those two, fa- those two passages fill me with an equal measure of excitement and absolutely terrifying fear. Um, on the one hand, we're being asked to give in a way that will cost us everything. We're being asked to give away everything that we have and, and hold possessions and money so lightly as we give to people who have an urgent need for them. And that's a hard thing because we're told from a very young age that we have to be successful and that we have to work hard so that we can get jobs that earn lots of money and that we can live comfortable lives and that we can afford to do really nice things. But I wonder today if when we read through the Bible, that's not what God's calling us to if we're being called to something different and a life where we sacrifice to the point where it costs us, if we're being called to a life where we go without so that others can go with. But then there's the excitement of that as well, that second point. If we sow, um, if we sow in a way that is bountiful, we will also reap in a way that is bountiful. I don't think what Paul's talking about here is if we give away lots of money, we'll get lots of money back. I think he's talking about a kingdom reward, a heavenly reward that we can't even imagine or fathom that when we sow in a bountiful way and we're prepared to give to the point where we're going without, that God just looks at that and loves it and has such rewards for us for doing that. So what does it look like for us to give sacrificially? Because don't hear from me this morning that I'm telling you to, to sack in your job and sell your house and give away everything that you have. That's not what God's saying here. I think for each of us, it looks different. You know, for some of us, it might mean having one takeaway a month instead of two and using that money somewhere else. For some of us, it might mean taking one less holiday a year and putting that money into somewhere else, somewhere where somebody's really got an urgent need that needs filled. For others of us, it might mean not upgrading to the very latest phone and being happy to settle for the, the slightly older model to free up some money again. I think it will look different for all of us, but the main thing is that we're listening to God's call on it. You know, we can give away as much as we like, but if we're not hearing from God about what he wants us to give, then we're not going to be walking in the plan he has for us. So my encouragement this morning would be to listen to God. What's God saying about your possessions, your finances, all that kind of stuff? What's he saying? Listen to him. And if he's challenging you to give away and to give to the point where it costs, then I would do that because he's saying that when we sow bountifully, also will we reap bountifully. So we've to go and we've to give and then finally I was really struggling for a G, so I've pretty loosely, tenuously done this to get smart. <laughs> really, it should just say, be productive. <laughs> so what we've been called to hear, um, Paul challenges us to be a productive people and not to live unproductive lives. 
Some of the other translations say, don't live unfruitful lives. Don't live lives that are devoid of fruit, that don't have any fruit where you're not producing good things. I think the challenge we're being faced with here is not just to be busy for being busy's sake, but to be busy in the way that God wants us to be busy. Paul himself was an extremely busy man, but each and every step of the way, and each time he went out and preached the gospel, he was listening to God. He was listening to where God wanted him, what God wanted him to say, and what God wanted him to do. He was constantly listening for God. Um, I've just recently got into cycling in a bit of a bigger way. Any cyclists? Is that I was going to say cyclers there, but it's not the right word. Um, I've got quite into it. I will ashamedly admit that I recently bought the the old Lycra cycling shorts with the padded bit in the bum for extra comfort. Um, That's how seriously I'm taking my cycling these days. Um, Just maybe a bit of an overshare there, but... Um, but one thing I have quickly learned about cycling it is very important to be in the right gear Um, if you are cycling up a hill and you're in the wrong gear if you're in a really wrong gear it is hard work you put in a lot of effort and energy that you don't need to be putting in it takes you much longer to get there and it feels like a big waste of time and energy Whereas if I'm in the right gear going up a hill, things click together, it goes quicker, it's easier, and I get there with a bit more purpose and direction. It's very important to be in the right gear. And this is what Paul is saying here in his last little nugget of advice for us in this book. He's encouraging us to get in the right gear, to live lives that are not unproductive, but that are focused and that are productive. His challenge is not to just get busy for busy's sake, but to be in the right gear kind of busy, to seek God on the things that he wants us to do and to do what he's calling us to do. In Proverbs 19, verse 21, it says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You see, we can fill our lives with being busy every day. We can work long hours. We can do tons of things outside the work. We can fill our lives completely to the point of being full. But, the, but it's kind of like working in the wrong gear if we've not got God in it. It's kind of like we struggle and we strain and we push and we fight and it feels hard every step of the way and it feels like we're burnt out and tired when we get there and when we get there it feels like it wasn't even worth getting there. Paul here is challenging us not to live unproductive lives, not to live in a way where we burn ourselves out just doing things that we think are good ideas, but he's challenging us to take a step back and listen to God. What is God saying? What has God got for you? What's the direction? And when we do that, when we're walking in his plans and his ways and we're, we're, we're working in the power of his Holy Spirit, amazing things happen. Incredible things happen. It's like having the bike in the correct gear. Not only does it feel right, but you get where you're supposed to be going much quicker and you get there with purpose and real direction when we're doing that and we walk on the path he has set before us. And what I'm not saying is that as soon as you say yes to God, everything becomes easy. That's definitely not what I'm saying because sometimes it will be hard and he'll call you to hard places. You know, for some people, God calls them to war zones. God calls you into dictatorships. God calls you into real poverty and real hardness and real tough things. But the difference is when you're there with God's plan and not your own plan, you have a promise and a truth to stick to when things get hard. You know, when you're working in your own business that you've created for yourself, not business, but 
busyness that you've created for yourself, it's really easy to walk away when things get tough. It's really easy to, to jack it in and say, I'm not doing this anymore. But when you're out with God and you've heard him speak to you and you know where he's calling you, it's much easier to stick with it when times get hard because you know that that's where you're supposed to be. When you've got purpose, it gives you stickability. And for some of us this morning, it may be that we're hearing that, we, we're waiting to hear that call for the first time in our lives. We don't know what God's calling us into. We don't know where he's calling us, but we want to know. And we'd love to pray for you this morning. For some of us, we've heard that call in the past, but it feels like a while since he spoke to us. It feels like ages, and it feels like we're maybe slipped into the wrong gear. And again, we'd love to pray for you this morning just for that call to be reaffirmed in your life again. And for some of us as well, it just feels really hard. It feels like God's never spoke to us. It feels like we've never had a plan or a purpose, and it feels like we're just working to the point of burnout. And again, I want to say this morning, I really do believe that God has a plan for you and God has something good for you. And it might be hard, it might be tough sometimes, but being with him makes it easy to, easier to stick with it because you can hope in him. You can anchor that promise. You can anchor your soul to his promises. So it's a, a bit of a short passage today, but three big challenges. Go, give, and get smart. Brackets, be productive. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together.